pre, uh, the week before Easter. It's my first Easter with Four Points Church. I'm excited. Oh, man. I love talking about the cross. I love talking about the empty tomb. Uh, today, we are going to land on this march to the cross that we have been eight weeks in the making doing. We started eight weeks ago in John's Gospel. John chapter 13, he gives us five chapters on the last hours of Jesus' life as he broke bread with his disciples and gave them last words of encouragement as he set his gaze and attention to the cross where he would ultimately be ridiculed and forsaken and die in place for sinful people that weren't looking for or asking for a Savior, but they needed one in a deeper way than they ever could realize or no, and so we spent five weeks looking at those five chapters, and then we started looking at minor characters that make a major impact in the story of Christ's cross. Minor characters who normally would just be in the background, who Jesus brings into the forefront, and he intersects his path to the cross with their life, so that we would know, like Barabbas, you and I can go free because there is a substitute that offers to stand in our place. And like the criminal on the cross, who was one of the, in his last hours of life, dying on a cross with no way to pay back Jesus, we all have the opportunity to receive the free grace and the free gift, even in our dying breath, that Jesus offers because of his salvation. You don't have to live a life that's perfect to pay back what Christ has done for you, but salvation is the free gift that Christ offers to whosoever would believe. Minor characters that are brought into a major role in the story of God. And we're going to see the last two minors that make a major difference in some of the old characters we've brought up as we march to the cross in Mark chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, Mark 15, I'm uh, heavy in preaching this to you. Uh, this is not light. The cross is brutal. Uh, the cross shows us the cost of the reckoning of man's sin and rebellion. It shows and demonstrates in action that love is not just a word, it is a verb. And Jesus demonstrates what love looks like as he lays down his life for us so that you and I could be made right with God. For the believer this morning as we come to Christ's cross, this is to serve as a reminder that where you are at and who you are is not of your own work and effort, but it is the grace and mercy of Christ that has brought you out of your tombs into life. And so my prayer for you as we march to the cross this morning is that you would rise in gratitude, that, 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 that you would appreciate in a greater way the cost at which Christ went to so that you could live and walk the Spirit-filled Christian life that He has called you to live. For those of you that aren't in Christ I want to remind you that this is an invitation and a warning. You have been given a volition and a will and the opportunity to live your life however you so choose, but not free from the eternal consequences that come with a life that is lived in rebellion against God. All of us start in the same position, sinners in need of a Savior. But Jesus offers us the opportunity to be transitioned into a new life and a new way of living. Saints, because of the Savior... And my invitation to you and my encouragement to you today is that you would realize that though the condemnation of God is real, the grace of God is great. And the cross is a demonstration that Jesus' desire is that you, 
in your sin would hear the gospel and understand that you can't save yourself, that your righteousness and self-righteous efforts will never climb the hill to achieve what Jesus on the hill did for you as an atoning sacrifice to pay for what you've done to cross the chasm that separated you from the God that you needed and in your soul long to knew, uh, to know. So, so I bring all this into view because I want you to know if you're a believer, I don't preach the cross because you're condemned. You're not condemned. You are sons and daughters. You, you no longer have the fear of condemnation. You get conviction from a father that loves you and disciplines those that he loves. So if you're a believer, you are disciplined because the father loves you and he convicts you, but he doesn't condemn you. If you are without Christ, Jesus loves you, he convicts you because he doesn't desire condemnation from your sin on you, so he offers to take it on himself. So let's march to the cross, Mark chapter 15, verse 21. It says this, A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside. Just then, the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock, the third hour of the day, in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. There's a a lot of background that we can gather from the four Gospels and from Jewish history during the time of Roman occupation in Jerusalem that gives us a greater understanding of what's going on in this story. By this point in time, we pick it up. Barabbas has gone free. Jesus stands in his place, not as an exchange, but a substitute to pay for all of humanity's sin in offering salvation so that none would perish from the Father Jesus, after being scourged and having his flesh torn from his back, is attached to a patellum, which is a crossbeam, which weighed between 75 to 100 pounds. After a night of being exhausted, going through multiple trials, multiple false accusations, suffering through a scourging at the hands of a professional Roman executioner, he then has the weight of the cross put on his back, and he is marched with four officers through the streets of Jerusalem just days before or just day, a day after the Passover feast was observed. Now, studying Jewish history, what I've learned is that whenever they would take a route to the cross, they would take the longest route possible. Uh, that route is known to us as the Via Dolorosa, which is the Road of Sorrows. And it was a daily occurrence, if you lived during that time, that you would see people who had rebelled against Rome being marched on this long journey to Golgotha, where they would be crucified as a warning that if you rebel against Rome, this will be your fate too. There was a quartet of, uh, I, I, what did I put in there? I called it something more special. There was a cohort, there we go, of four officers that would have marched around the condemned. An officer in the front, two officers on the side, and an officer behind. Uh, they would have been there to keep the crowds back. And we're told that in the middle of this, there is a soldier on the front that carried the sign that hung above Jesus' head that's mentioned in verse 26 that told the entire community of the charge that this man in the middle was being crucified for. It was to say, you do this, this is what your fate will be. His charge, though, was unlike any other. His charge was king of the Jews. 
Crucifixion was the most brutal of deaths that you could die. And Quintilian, who was a Roman educator, said they should, because of its effectiveness at keeping peace in occupied Roman territory, that they should march people through the busiest streets because of the threat of crucifixion and the way that it kept order in Roman-occupied territory. After all of this, Jesus comes to a point where he begins to physically struggle to walk. The Son of God, who in the beginning with God the Father and God the Spirit created with words everything that is known, now wrapped in flesh embraces humanity's weakness and walks the valley of the shadow of death that all of humanity has earned by their own sin. And he struggles. And in that moment, a man in verse 21 is brought into our story. A minor character who has his life affected in a major way by his encounter with Jesus. They said, in verse 21, a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, there's a cheat sheet up there, hooked on phonics, still works, Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya, it's northern Africa. He was a dispersed Jewish man who was coming in for the Passover celebration. We're also told in verse 21 that as he came in, he was forced by the soldiers into the cohort, into the middle of them, to help Jesus bear this cross. And then they throw this detail in there. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, if there's anything you're going to learn with me as your pastor for a week or for 10 years, is I want to teach you to think. I know that's shocking, because a lot of times like people are like, I don't want questions. Ask all the questions you want. I want you to think. And when you read details like that in the Bible, I want you to understand that you should ask yourself, why give us that? Why not tell us there's just a random man that's in the crowd that's coming in after, around Passover and he was thrown in to help Jesus shoulder the cross? Why tell us his name is Simon? And more importantly, why tell us about his sons that were with him who weren't even in the picture? Why tell us about Rufus and Alexander? What's going on with that? Well, if you flip over to the book of Acts... Uh, what we know in the early church is that there's this man that's mentioned who has a unique name and he's given a unique title. It says, among the prophets and the teachers of the church of Antioch of Syria were Barnabas and Simeon called the black man, which many people believe is Simon, that's in this story that's bearing the cross with him. I pointed out in first service, just want to point it out again, no matter what English artists did way back in the day, Jesus was Jewish and he had brown skin. And there's lots of brown and black people that are around the cross and around Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. you got to wait a while for us Romans and Europeans to come into the story more and for us to see more white people. But what we see is a diverse gathering around it, no matter what the painters did with making a blue-eyed Jesus. I feel like I have to throw that in there for some of you because you like get upset whenever Jesus doesn't look Swedish. And he wasn't, wasn't Swedish. So I don't care what Kincaid painted him like, like he's a Jewish man. Nonetheless, there's neither Jew nor Greek, you know, Gentile or free, slave or free. It, but you get my point. My, my, my whole point is, in Acts 13, apparently, whatever happens in this interaction between Simon, it brings him to become a common character within the early church. He, he begins to make an impact within the early church that means he's worthy of being noted. When Mark, John Mark writes his gospel, he wants people to know Simon, who's in our church, who's a leader amongst us, had his life changed on a random Passover as he walked into Jerusalem, and he's thrown into this story with Jesus who intersects his life, and now he's with us. 
some more evidence that plays into that. What were his two sons' names? Rufus and... Okay, well, in Romans 16, 13, we're said, greet Rufus. Now, we can debate this. Maybe, maybe Rufus was like a really common name like John or Lucas. But, I mean, in our day, Ruf, how many Rufuses y'all know? I knew one, he was an MMA fighter. Like, he didn't have many teeth. Like, that's, that's the only Rufus I've ever met. Maybe in Woodruff, it's a real common name. Maybe y'all, like, like everybody's Rufus. Pro- probably not that common. And, and it makes sense that they would be mentioned by name if they're common within the church, if they're known within the church in this story. What I'm trying to get at is whatever happened as Simon bore the cross, it apparently had some kind of lasting effect on him and it changed his life. And, and the same is true today because for a lot of you, your life was intersected by the cross. And as a result of it, you may not be what you want to be, but you're not what you used to be. And your life has changed. And now your name is not just written in a book, but it's written in the book of life because of the Savior that gave you life on the cross. I just thought it was interesting. I want to point that out. Verse 23, we get another detail. If you skip down with me, it says, when he got to the place of the skull, Golgotha, they offered him what? Wine drugged with myrrh. This interesting cocktail. And there's two cocktails offered to Jesus, and they differ in what they're made up of. I know you may not want to know this, but I'm going to tell you in any way. This first cocktail, it, it plays into this thing that Jewish women apparently did in response to Proverbs chapter 31, verse 6. In Proverbs 31, 6, it says this alcohol, if you look in the old text, it talks about this mixture of myrrh and wine. The alcohol is for the dying and wine for those in bitter distress. And so apparently there was some group of women that stayed around or near the cross and they would give this drink and offer it to those that had been condemned to be crucified. If you look into some detail, uh, I found that there was a physician named this, Dioscorides something, Pedarius, there it is, that's his name, good luck, who made an intrinsic study of almost 600 plants and 1,000 drugs, and he observed that this myrrh cocktail mixed with wine had a narcotic pain-killing effect on those who took it. So the question is, why does Jesus not take the painkiller? Again, I want you to think. He's suffering. He has to die on the cross. He's been scourged. His back and bones are seeing the light of day. His heart is beating and working as fast as it can to produce blood to keep the body going. Why not take something that numbs the pain? Well, Psalm 69, 21 says this. But instead, they gave me poison for food and they offered me sour wine for my thirst. One of the reasons I believe that Jesus is the Messiah is because in the Old Testament, we get these detailed insights into the way in which Jesus would die, that then Jesus walks out in detail. He said there will not be one dot or iota that will pass away from the law until it is fulfilled. So every prophecy and every bit of the law, Jesus fulfills. Everything that was said that would happen to the Messiah happened to Jesus as he walked the Via Dolorosa and ultimately ended his life on the cross of Golgotha. Now, again, is it a prophecy? But what else? Why else would he not take the painkiller? Let me give you a second reason. 
I believe Jesus knew that the painkiller could give him a lucid state to where he wouldn't be of sound mind. And Jesus wanted to maintain clarity of mind and embrace the full weight of his suffering because on the cross there was still ministry to do. If he takes the painkiller and blacks out, he may miss out on the opportunity for a criminal who doesn't deserve him to receive him. He may miss out on an opportunity to comfort the disciple he loves, John, who's standing by his mother, Mary, who needs the comforting words of, son, here's your mother, mother, here's your son. Even in the most immense of pain, Jesus prioritized ministry to his dying breath. He valued ministry over comfort. He valued ministry over comfort. And I'm, I'm trying to get this through to a few Followers of Jesus in the house who are prioritizing comfort over ministry. Who have gotten into this attitude of survivalism instead of laying it all on the line for the glory of God. Instead of embracing the space in your life where either he comes through and he looks holy, or if he doesn't come through, you look foolish for believing he was such a big and awesome God. You've embraced this pr version of Jesus that backs down from risky faith and walks in complacent faith and lukewarm faith. And the last time I checked, that's not an acceptable faith in the Bible. Jesus, with his dying breath, prioritized ministry. How about you? How about you? Are you walking in the path of our Messiah and perhaps in the greatest moment where you can honor God, dishonoring God because you've shut your mouth to praise and you've stopped honoring God in the midst of suffering? There is no early church apart from persecution. Like there, there was not a such thing as a first century Christian that didn't know isolation and persecution from family and friends because they had no context for this kind of Christ-centered, blood-bought community. So to know Jesus was to be isolated from family. To know Jesus was to come at a great cost. To know Jesus in America is to be culturally accepted for the most part. My, my point is not saying that ministry should be painful. My point is saying pain should not deter you from ministry. Am I making sense? Look at what it goes on to say in verse 24. It says, then the soldiers, in one real quick sentence, we get this, nailed him to the cross. Nailed him to the cross. That means they drove spikes into the most sensitive of nerve endings in the body. A&E has done lots of background on the pain that is suffered while on the cross. There's a lot of medical journals that have actually written about the pain that one goes through. I actually found a study in the 60s where people willingly volunteered to be tied to a cross just to feel what it felt like to be on a cross. They weren't nailed in. They were just tied to. Within 30 minutes, their arms were completely numb. Within 45 minutes, they were in excruciating pain to where they started to try and bear the weight of their body on their feet. Within an hour and 15 minutes, they were all crying out to get off of the cross because their legs and their arms were completely numb and their bodies shaking and backs arching trying to support the weight and discomfort that came with the cross. I've mentioned it frequently over this series, but Romans were brutal in crucifixion. I mean, it's believed that the Babylonians first started doing it 500 years prior, but the Romans perfected it. They put a torture seat so that you couldn't die of asphyxiation and you would have to almost suffocate and pass out only to pull up on the sensitive nail endings with the flayed back that had to then have the spikes of the cross that would have not been milled wood and nice wood going into your skin, further giving you discomfort just to get enough breath to keep suffering on the cross. Many people hung on the cross for days on end. It was a significant way to drive great fear into anyone that would dare to cross them. 
In March 21, 1986, the Journal, of American, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association said death by crucifixion was in every sense the word excruciating, which means, by definition, literally out of the cross. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, about the mystery of Christ's cross. He says, he creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, because he's God, that there are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven state, the nails driven through the medial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it time after time uh, comes up for breath's sake, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein, we see love. What? Love. He knew we would rebel. He knew the cross would be in his path. And he still Gave you life. Before he ever gave you Numa, his spirit, he knew you would in sin be dead to him and need life that only he could give you in exchange by his own life for you. You see, some of you shake your fist at God. You say, what have you done for me? Why did you put me here? Why did you allow this to happen? And in the shaking of the fist, you forget that God, in demonstration of his love, suffered on your behalf, died in your place, in the most excruciating of deaths. I mean, cultured civilians didn't even speak as Roman citizens of the crucifixion. Cicero, in his big speech, the pro Rabirio, said, even the mere word cross must remain far from the lips of citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. We don't even talk about it. An actor in Rome portrayed a crucifixion on stage, and the crowd booed and jeered at him and wished that they would actually crucify him for doing it because of how brutal it was to see the suffering and the image that would come to mind whenever it was done. In the rare case that they crucified a woman, they would crucify her face in the cross because they believed it wasn't fit for, for you to see a woman in that much pain. And in the middle of this, Jesus comes to a group of people that want to follow him that have seen crucifixion day in and day out, and they're like, how do we follow you? And what does Jesus say? Take up your, what? This is the way of love. You see, God's chief value is love. And love is never robotically forced out of you. I mean, the words are very true in that old love song. I can make you love me if you don't. And I can make you feel things that your heart wants. I mean, God doesn't make you love him but he gives you the opportunity to love him <laughs> at a high cost. He offers himself in exchange for you. Friends, this is love. Your mama may say she loves you. You may have some friends that say they love you, but there is one who died for you in your place. 
Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, speaking of the crucifixion, thousands of years in advance, says the body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day, for anyone who is hung is cursed. He was cursed because of our curse, so that those who were cursed could go free. He was cursed for our curse, so that those who are cursed could go free in the sight of God. In this way, you will prevent the defilement of of the land the Lord your God is giving you as your special possession. Philippians chapter 2, I love what it says in the ESV, that Christ was willing to go to the cross, or Christ was willing to die, even death on a cross in your place. It's saying there's a lot of ways you can die. Jesus was willing to die in the most excruciating of ways to make the greatest of payments so that you and I could have life in Christ. It says also in verse 24 that they cast lots for his clothes at the base of the cross. So after they get there, the few possessions he does have, these Roman soldiers cast some dice to figure out who gets them. Again, the details there not for accident, but because there was a prophecy. Hundreds of years in advance in Psalm 22, which is known as the Messiah's Psalm, which lays out the graphic nature of the death that Jesus would ultimately come and die. And in it, it says in Psalm 22:18 that they would cast lots for his stuff. Why? Because God didn't want you to miss out on his invitation of love. He didn't want you to miss out on salvation. So he called his shot and then made it happen. That's why. Verse 27 gives us more detail into the story. After he's crucified, after his clothes have been divided up, we get the story of two revolutionaries who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on his left. In the middle of the two revolutionaries is a crowd of people down at the base of the cross, the people passing by, and they're shouting abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Wait, five days ago they yelled and waved prom branches and said, Hosanna, and now perhaps the same people walk by and say, Cursed. This is the fickle nature of humanity. We praise God with this mouth and then we curse God with it on Monday. We honor God with our hands on Sunday, and then we use our hands for violence on Monday. This is why you need a Savior, because you can't help yourself, because sin is in you. It's not something you do occasionally outside of you. No, it's at the core of who you are. And in order for that to be eradicated, there had to be a resurrection. There had to be a great payment. So knowing that at the core of us, Jeremiah says this, all are wicked and evil. We love that text, don't we, in the church? We get excited. Oh, what am I? I'm wicked and evil apart from God. Praise God. No, no one's running around carrying that banner. No, I'm special. I'm close. I'm a unique snowflake. I'm an influencer. I'm mostly good. No, you're not. Apart from Christ, there is nothing good. And what you have of goodness is like filthy rags before him. I won't go into the detail. I'll spell you what that means, okay? You just look it up later. Two criminals hang there. They begin to mock him. The crowd's going by. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They didn't know what was coming three days later, but that's for next week. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. Then the leading priest and the teachers who have riled the crowd up to get this charge to stick against Jesus, they joined in. They're like, yeah, this is exactly what we wanted. And they begin to mock Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this king of Israel come down from the cross so that we can what? What does he say? See it. And what will we do? We'll believe. Okay, two things. First, let's talk about these two criminals. Pastor Joe did a great job of talking about them the other day. But let me just really quickly, criminal left, criminal right. Why is criminal on the left there? 
He's in sin. And whether it was crucifixion now or death by natural causes later, he was going to die in sin. Whether it was sins that we felt like deserved jail time or sins that gets him behind a gate with lots of money and lots of stuff, he was in sin. And the Bible says, for the wage of sin is... So justice was happening. The criminal on the right, why was he there? Because he was in sin. Are, are you tracking with me through this? And whether it was by this means or another means, he in sin was deserving of death and eternal separation, not just physical death, but eternal separation because of that sin from God the Father who was so longed for, desires to be around and needs in order to have peace. But in the middle, there was a man who was not in sin. He was without sin. So in sin, in sin, but in the middle there's a man that's without sin that hung there. Now both the criminals join in in ridiculing him, but we know by the other gospel accounts that one of the criminals actually cried out to him who was in sin and was going to die with the weight of sin on him. And as a result of him crying out for salvation and mercy from Jesus... The sin that he was dying with on him was transferred and put on Christ who had no sin. I'm trying to get to the gospel here. This other man with sin, dying with his sin on him, maybe had pride. Maybe he had made his bed with what he had done. Maybe he was good with it. But what he didn't understand is that God wasn't good with it. God saw it fit that the same invitation that went to the man over here would go to the man over here and that he would be invited to allow the sin that was on him to not, not only be removed from him but placed on Christ so that today he wouldn't die and perish in a place called hell but he would die and be in a place called paradise. And there was nothing either one of them could do to pay it back because their life was dwindling to an end. <laughs> this is the grace and the mercy of God. My question to you this morning is simple. If you are in sin, that means you're human. But if your sin isn't on you, that means you've become Christian. You've put your faith in Christ Jesus, and the Father is faithful and just to put your sin on him. So now you, though you are in sin, no longer walk in sin, but you now are a saint in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven. You are set free. You are redeemed. You're an adopted son and daughter of the Most High King. And so we face death now, not with the weight of sin on us, but knowing that the weight of sin has been taken from us by the Good Savior. So we can say stuff like, death, where is your sting? Man, this makes sense. So are you in sin, or is your sin on him? The second thing I point out in this text was the claim that the leading teachers cry out. They said, Messiah, come off the cross and we will do a miracle and we'll what? We'll believe. Do more miracles and we'll believe. And somebody like, there's just not enough evidence. Well, I could make a really good long argument with you about that one and we could have a lot of fun about how much evidence there is that supports the background of who Jesus said he was. Just because you had one college professor that was angry at God, called himself an atheist, but really was an agnostic because God didn't answer a prayer that he wanted him to answer for his grandma, doesn't mean that God, God doesn't exist. I mean, the peril we all have to deal with is a good God in the midst of a bad world. It doesn't go away. 
and it doesn't violate the claim, the fact that God is good and there's a good work that he's doing that you may not see, may not understand, and may not experience on your side of eternity. But nonetheless, in eternity, all the world will see and all the world will know that he's king of kings, Lord of lords, good, reigning, ruling, returning as the Savior and the Messiah forever. Here's my point. Miracles are not the problem for why you don't believe. Evidence is not the problem for why you don't believe. If miracles was all we needed, then there's no need for a cross. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, walks around supernaturally to the other side, and the people that got the meal show up, and the very first thing they say to him is what? Give us a miracle to prove that you are the Messiah. Here's the problem with miracles. God does them. He still does them. They didn't get canonized out whenever the Bible got, like, like, stop that. Let me take you to Africa and you'll shut up. He still does miracles. But what can happen is people seeing miracles begin to pursue the hand of God and not the face of God. So they get a miracle, but they don't want God. They want another miracle. So then they get another miracle, but they don't want God. They want another miracle. So they get another miracle, but they don't want God. And the whole point is you need God, not the miracle. If you got God, you got everything you need. If you get a miracle, you need more. Elijah, not Elijah, uh, brain, 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 work, work, work. Um, Lazarus. Lazarus comes out of the grave. But can you, let's just imagine this. He already died once. He gets raised, and then he has to die physically again. What he needed was a Messiah who was greater than the grave, and what he got in Jesus was everything that he needed, which was greater than a resurrection that he experienced. This, this is the, the point I'm trying to get across. Some of you, you're like, I need a miracle. No, you need a Savior. And Jesus gives himself as a Savior to you, as a Messiah to you, because his goal is that you wouldn't pursue what's in his hand. You would pursue what is only found in his face, and that is peace and love and joy, which is eternal, and it supersedes circumstances. Some of you want the hand of God, and Jesus is saying, I can give you what's in my hand. Pursue my face. Then in verse 33, the story goes on. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. That's an interesting detail. Is there some history out there that supports this claim that the entire area of Jerusalem went black? I wouldn't be smiling if there wasn't. <laughs> There's a lot. I'll give you one. Uh, AD 137, a Greek historian wrote an extensive chronology about Jewish and Roman history in his Olympiad. His name was Philagan, and this is what it says in it. The greatest eclipse of the sun, it became night in the sixth hour of the day, i.e. noon, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. So we have eclipses that last for like 15, 20 minutes. If you look at it, you can't see well now without one of those special things. And you did in third grade, and you're like, ah, Haley's Comet, okay, or whatever. You're like, eclipses, stars bright things. It goes dark for three hours. In the history book, it's recorded this dark night. It became night in the sixth hour of the day, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake. What happens when Jesus says it's finished according to the scripture? The earth shakes in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. It's from this guy that wrote this around 100 years after the resurrection, looking at references around the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. So, at noon, darkness comes over all of the sky. Then, at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, 
Elo Elo Lama Sabatini, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? One, that's a prophecy. That's why that's there. Psalm 22, verse 1. Two, Jesus did it so that when you went through your valley, you wouldn't do it alone. He's a good shepherd in the valley of the shadow of death because he walked the valley of the shadow of death, abandoned and forsaken. He's a good shepherd in the midst of life's turmoils and life's troubles because he is a good shepherd who was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it was a persecuted church that says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but not ever abandoned by God. Why? Because he was abandoned. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that in the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. We're suffering. It ain't right, but he's here. It's not good, but God's good, and he's with us. I mean, I mean, this is the perplexing claim that comes from those who know the Messiah and the Savior. They go through the darkest of valleys and the most difficult of times, and their witness in suffering speaks to the goodness of God that's not been overtaken by the evil of suffering and pain that's going on in their life. And then in, skip down to verse 35, it says, after this cry, some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah, who was prophesied to have come as a forerunner before Jesus. Jesus says that Elijah is this guy named John, the Baptist, who was the forerunner for him preparing the way. He was misunderstood too. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, second drink, and was holding it up to him on a reading stick so he could drink it. Okay, I didn't have a ton of time to get into this too far, but apparently this second drink is either something they cleaned and sanitized with, so they offered him cleaner, or there's this one guy that's done this really big study on what they were, would have had as soldiers to drink out by the cross, and apparently they had an ancient wine Gatorade, to which I think we should put more research into. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> they offered him this drink on a stick so he could drink it. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes down or not. Verse 37, then Jesus uttered another loud cry. Now, John Mark's writing this gospel. Who's given him the information since he wasn't a first-hand witness? Anybody? Peter. Okay. So Peter has a traveling companion named John Mark. John Mark writes this down. We have it in our Bible. Now, who is near the cross who would know what the loud cry would be? The disciple Jesus loves. John 19. So, what's the loud cry? What was so important that he had to cry it out one last time. They had to go through the pain to get the words out. John 19, verse 25, or excuse me, yeah, John 19. But when they came to Jesus, they saw, oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, go back to 25, that's where I wanted to go. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, John's title for himself, ain't it sweet? Jesus loves y'all, but he loves me. He said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Look at what it goes on to say. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill the, the prophecy, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, Pulling up on the nails that caused pain and on a back that had been frayed wide open, it 
is finished. What is required for you in sin to be free is done. It is not to be added to. It is not to be earned. It has been completely earned and gifted by the sweat equity and work of Christ. It is finished. Verse 38 of Mark, the Holy of Holies in the temple is torn in two. By verse 39, Gentiles are already recognizing God. They had to stay in the outer courts and couldn't get near to the presence of God. But now, at the cross, a Roman soldier says, surely this is the Son of God, our last minor character that's brought into the story in a major way. Why do I bring it up? They come to Jesus and they discover that he's already dead, so they don't break his legs, which was another prophecy, just in case you were wondering. But uh, they shoved a spear into his side, and water and blood flowed out. They did an autopsy that I saw uh, through a, a medical journal on the way in which Jesus likely died. It's believed that Jesus' heart literally ruptured and blew up. God loves you. His desire is that you would not only not live in sin, but that sin you have committed would not live on you. And his invitation by his stripes, by his wounds, by his sacrifice, is for your sin to be removed from you and put on him. That's salvation. Our prayer team is going to come forward. And if you've never given your life to Christ, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, then he is faithful and just to forgive you all of your iniquity, which is a big word for sin. And if you've never, with your mouth, professed Jesus as your Lord and given the reins of your life over to him, then I invite you to boldly come before the people of God and the house of God and profess that you need Jesus. We'll lead you in a prayer. We'll talk with you about what it means to walk with the Lord. And in just a minute, we want to invite you to do so. If you are a believer, believer, there is no walking in the path of Christ without cross-bearing. There is no walking in the path of Christ without cross-bearing. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily take up his cross and follow me. I don't know what your cross is, but God is with you and empowering you through the crucified life to honor him. So for you, maybe today is a response of gratitude. God, thank you for your cross and for walking with me as I bear the cross you've called me to bear in the path of long-observed obedience for your glory. Maybe your response is repentance. You are no longer in threat of condemnation, but as a child, God may be correcting you because you in the old way of living have turned back and begin to turn creation into an idol of your heart. This is the old way of living. We worship the creator, not creation, and perhaps today is a day of repentance. As we stand and we sing, you move as the Lord leads. If you need to give your life to Jesus, you come now in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer team, you come forward. Let's sing.